Okay, well, it is the 17th of December, and we're back again after two weeks, um, looking at our 10th lesson as we continue studying from Matthew chapter 3. We started two weeks ago uh, on the third, looking at um, uh, the beginning of the chapter there with John the Baptist, and of course we were snowed out <laughs> last week with our with our blizzard, so to speak, and now we're back again. And with that, uh, as I said, I f- maybe we should go back just a moment and, and uh, kind of bring us forward on where we are and looking at John, what we've covered so far as we began there in chapter 3, uh, the first six verses, and we didn't, we didn't quite get through, so that's going to work for us today. I'll work to finish that up this morning, and then we'll have a little more fellowship time this morning. Uh, go ahead and let you know we won't have uh, Bible study next Sunday or the next, okay, for the holidays. So we'll be gone again for, uh, for two Sundays, you know, just have worship service. So uh, keep that in mind and uh, pray for our class and pray for my preparations and so forth as we continue when we get back from the holidays uh, with Matthew. So we began looking at John the Baptist, and we looked first at the man John the Baptist, and we went back and pulled some scriptures uh, from Luke to uh, bring a little more, uh, a little more clarity, a little more information than Matthew gives us here. And without going back through the whole thing, I'll just focus on Luke one fifteen, where it says that he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. We explored. That scripture, and we talked about uh, the Holy Spirit uh, landing upon John, uh, as the Bible says, from his mother's womb. And I didn't deal a whole lot with the issue about him not drinking <laughs> uh, wine or liquor. I wanted to save that till we get down to uh, actually the passages that we want to get in today where we're talking about John's separation from the world and so forth. But we'll look at that. It's interesting as we think about that verse and think about Ephesians 5.18 that tells us, Be not drunk with wine, we're in his dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And John was filled with the Spirit and uh, he didn't have any. He didn't, he didn't partake, that's what the Scripture says. Uh, we moved along in looking at him, uh, talking about his mission. It says in those days that he came baptizing he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and uh, he preached to everyone who would come and listen and he was the herald he was the one who was sent forth and many came many came with uh, different motives and John uh, through the Holy Spirit knew that and called them out we'll see some of that uh, later on but his message didn't change for anyone who was there to listen to him. Didn't change one iota. In verse 2 it says that his message was to repent for the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And we said those were interchangeable. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, so John continued with that message. That's what he was called to do. He was called to prepare the way. And that's exactly uh, what he was doing. So we focused on that. We looked at the word uh, repentance, we talked about the noun form, metanoia, the verb form, metanoia. Meta, uh, that's the most common word that's used in the Greek for repentance. And there are other words, and we'll look at some of that later. Uh, 
he comes preaching that message, as I said, in preparation for Christ who was to begin his ministry at the same time John was preaching, uh, or right, right in there, just a few weeks apart. We also looked at the fact that he was the one who was referred to, as it says in verse 3, by the prophet Isaiah. And he quotes, uh, we quote from Isaiah, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight, from Isaiah 43. And we went back and looked at that and discovered that he came, that is John the Baptist came, as it says, in the spirit and power of Elijah, from Luke 1, 17. Because John himself said, I'm, I'm not Elijah. And then you got Jesus coming, it was recorded in Matthew eleven fourteen and 15, where Jesus says, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. So Luke clears it up for us. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah, and the emphasis is not as much on him as it is what he was doing. That he was the man appointed for that mission at that time for a particular message, a specific message. That's the emphasis. In fact, when we looked at the greatness of John, as declared by Jesus, we looked at his message. That's what made John great. Of course, we want to go back and, and look at the, the trappings of John, you know, what John as a person, you know, brings to the table. But we know from the beginning that that's all about God, is it not? He was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, okay? I dare say that made a big difference, right? Yeah, it certainly made a big difference in my life. So, the message is what uh, we emphasize, and we went back and looked at that as, as well. So we know who John is. We know what his message is. Well, he was faithful to that message. And it's, it's tempting to not get caught up in the person of John because he is an interesting fella. And what we know about him, uh, again, if for no reason that, that Christ says that, you know, among you know, men born among women, that he, he is the greatest up to that time. That's, that's really saying something. We went back and looked at a, just as a reminder, a list of people, you know, up until that time who had done notable things, both men and women, in the kingdom of God, people from the Word of God. So the emphasis is upon the message. Now, I got into verse 4 of chapter 3 just a little bit, where it says that John, now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, this uh, references to him, uh, you know, wearing this... uh, this garment of, of camel's hair is, is significant uh, because this was indeed the garment, if you will, from the Old Testament. It was the garment of a prophet, and we see that emphasized throughout. Uh, I might have shared a verse of Scripture. I don't remember if I shared this or not from Zechariah 13.4 um, where he's speaking of false prophets. And that scripture in context is speaking of false prophets, but it says also it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies, and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive, just giving credence to, to the fact that prophets during that day were noted for wearing that. And then again in 1 Kings one eight, where it says uh, where Elijah it's spoken of Elijah the prophet. They're talking about him. They said, they answered him, he was a hairy man with a leather girdle, again, like John, and about, about his loins. 
if you actually look in the, as I understand it here in, in the Hebrew, what it says there about him being a hairy man, it's, it's, it really is talking about him wearing something hairy. Uh, it's pretty specific. It's not that he was like me and my mother's side of the family. <laughs> it's not, that's not what he's talking about. Uh, so that's what we're saying. So he put on that guard. He was recognized by looking at him, his demeanor as a prophet. And the people received John as a prophet. But his message was a bit different. Uh, of course, they were uh, acquainted with repentance. But repentance would take on a whole different meaning in the Jewish mindset. Okay. Uh, it still emphasized, you know, uh, it's, it's what you do. It's not the motivation behind what you do. It's just what you do. And we know that that's, uh, that doesn't merit anything. And uh, our repentance... Uh, is to be motivated from a faith, okay? That's what it's to be motivated from. So we'll get into that and look at that a little more as we, as we scoot along here with the verses. But this is an evidence, both how he looked and the message and so forth, his separation from the world. And he wasn't just separated from the world. Uh, and it's, it's analogous to salvation itself or to our sanctification. We are to separate ourselves from the world. We're to turn from sin, but it's equally important that we turn to the right thing, is it not? And that our repentance is manifested, that it's made known. Okay, uh, we'll look at that probably in not this lesson, but the next lesson even more in more detail because this word repentance keeps coming up, and sometimes they use different words for repentance. For instance, there's a word that talks about. Uh, the emotion of repentance. It's a whole different word. And we'll look at some of that and what it means to us. So, John was not, by his lifestyle, you know, by his mission, enslaved to this world. He was not. To be sure, he was a man. Uh, he was human like all of us. But his separation from the world was obvious. Not just in the message that he preached, but in his person, in his... Humanity. I couldn't help but think of 2 Corinthians 6.17 where Paul is quoting from Isaiah 52.11 and he says, Therefore come, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. So he's doing that. And it's a reminder to us that we're to live apart from this world, we're to notice, we're to take notice of what the world requires of us and to dare to be different. And to be different because we know that we cannot embrace the, the things of the world. That can't be our motivation and at the same time please God. Can't do it. We're to be a peculiar people, as it says in one place. We've made reference before to Matthew 5, 16 that talks about our light shining in a manner that will allow people, that will result in people looking at our life and seeing that our life manifests a change. But not only a change, not change for the sake of change itself, but it points to God, it points to Christ, you know. And it says that we're different, okay, and we are different. And I listed some other scriptures here for us to ponder this morning dealing with this change. And that's kind of what I want to center on as we finish up just these last few verses here, 4, 5, and 6. 1 John 2, 1 tells us not to love the world 
nor the things in the world. It says that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, we can take that verse and easily understand that those two things, loving the world and loving God the Father, are mutually exclusive. And of course, it's talking about a a wholehearted dedication of the heart. That's what it's talking about. That which characterizes us. Are you a lover of the world and the things of the world? Or are you a lover of God? Uh, Are you a lover of the Word of God? Would you not agree this morning that that will manifest itself? Did I pick the wrong verse, guys? Okay, okay. First John 2, 1. Huh? Did I leave the five off? Yes, sir. Okay. I thought something was wrong here. I saw. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So really what that boils down to is idolatry. And we don't think of it in those terms sometimes. Idolatry. James would tell us in 4.4, he referred, he says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And I think that needs to, to sink into us sometimes as we're trying to make decisions and we're planning out our life and we're planning out our resources and we're kind of looking at where we are and what, what God is requiring of us right now, the ministries that He's placed in front of us right now, the opportunities, the things that He's put upon our heart, the burdens, if you will, spiritual burdens for, for other people. What, what competes against all that? What competes against us doing the things that God has called us to do, whether in our families or work or church, wherever? What competes against that? Obviously, It's the world and the things of the world. Paul said, Demas has forsaken me. Why? Having loved this present world. He's too hooked up with the things of the world. They're more meaningful to him. And uh, that seems to be the continual battle, does it not? And it's exacerbated in our world because we live in a very affluent society. Every person in this room this morning, regardless of of your means, you are wealthy. You are wealthy compared to the rest of the world. You're in in a high percentage of those. You have a roof over your head, okay? You have some health care one way or another. Uh, You've got transportation. You've got all these things that we don't think about. And we serve a Christ who says, hey, if you've got a roof over your head, and if you've got food to eat, you ought to be satisfied. You ought to be content. Because we're mindful that this life and what we spend in this life, and I'm talking about how we spend our life, not, not necessarily money, but how we spend our life is the most important thing. This is what we'll give an account of one day. Would you agree with that this morning? We'll give an account of the blessings that have been laid upon us and how we've used those to minister, how we've used those to share with others. Christ would say things like, if you see your brother, you know, let me paraphrase, without a coat and you got two coats and you don't give him a coat, he says, and here we said they were mutually exclusive earlier, he says, how can you say that the love of God dwells in you? That's a heavy statement. 
that your love for God Himself comes into question when we focus upon the things of the world, particularly when we have opportunity to share, particularly when it's given to us to say nothing about sharing in a sacrificial way, which is what the body of Christ is to do. And Paul would tell us plainly that the reason so many have so much is so that someone else won't, won't go without. That should be the mindset. So we have to stop sometimes, maybe even during this time of year, <laughs> this Christmas time of year when we 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 fight the the world's influence regarding christmas a time where we celebrate the incarnation of our savior and lord the world would call it something else and now we're we're in uh, i've seen it change where you know over my brief lifetime 60 plus years now you can't even say christmas hardly you can't even say christ of course it's been that way for a while but you don't hear Christmas a lot. It's happy holidays. Enjoy the season. I got that greeting last night at Publix as I bought those little apple things back there. Holiday greetings to you, sir. Oh, thank you. Merry Christmas is what I always say back to them. That's the world that we live in. And uh, that's just going to get worse. That's not going to get any better, I'm afraid. Well, James talked about those who wanted to be a friend of the world. And he says that's, that's hostility toward God. You declare yourself to be the enemy of God. Peter later on would preach and he would talk about the doom of false prophets. And we read in 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8, he talks about, <clears throat> he talks about Lot here for an instance. And this kind of takes it on down to another level as we look at the potential influence of the world on our life. Because it talks about Lot, he talks about him, uh, he says, and if he rest, talking about Christ, if he rescued righteous Lot who was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, and then in parentheses it says, for by what uh, he said in her, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteousness, or his righteous soul rather, tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. We're talking about Lot living in Sodom, living in around uh, a society that was just really going downhill in a mighty way. In fact, God had purpose and did bring judgment on that place. But the emphasis here is on the impact that his surroundings had on him. One, I think in the, in the New King James, it says that he ve- his, vexed his righteous soul with the filthy conversation of the wicked. I almost like that better. Because that's what he was in and around all the time. In the marketplace with people that he had to deal with. And it has an impact. It was vexing to his righteous soul. Constantly the bombardment. And we live in a society that is just so oversexed. Everything is sex. Sex sells everything, it seems like, in our economy, does it not? A total domin- And we grow up in that. And we're trying to protect children in that. It's a difficult task, is it not? And that is the world weaving its way into our lifestyle. But be aware, it will affect our lives. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to choose to go and partake of something. This is the world invading our life. So how important is it? to keep the spiritual antennas up, to be rooted and grounded in the Word of God. 
And, uh, and we're just springboarding here off of uh, John the Baptist's example because his mission was a great mission. How great is your mission? I could say that. How great is our mission? And by that I mean, what are we supposed to be doing with what God has given to us and prepared us for? Everything that uh, is of, of a positive benefit in our life comes from Him. We'll give an account of it. And we're to return it unto Him. And it's just basic that we choose to separate ourselves from the world. It doesn't mean that we're weird. It doesn't mean that we're antisocial. It might mean that we don't participate in certain things that aren't, aren't for us. But when we're in the world, we're to be a light. We're to be a shining light because our motivation is different. Our motivation is about living forth a life that depicts Christ and His influence and the change that He, through His Word and His Holy Spirit, has brought about in our life. That's what we have. Well, our situation is much like Lot's was. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. I thought that was interesting. It's almost like Paul, when he's talking to the church at Corinth there in the latter chapters, you know, he just jumps back almost. You're probably pulling something out of Proverbs and just making that, that bold, succinct statement. Just saying, look, you want a rule to live by? You want something to pass on down to your children? Well, listen to this. Bad company corrupts good morals. Not, not unlike what we just looked at with Lot, who was living in and amongst those people there in Sodom. Day after day after day. And we get to the point where we just accept things, right? Don't we? We just accept things. We just accept the Lord's name in vain. Because you just go through the whole day, you know, uh, indicating your displeasure to someone over that. And there are ways to do that and there are times to do that. But I'm saying even in that, uh, and believe you me, working in a police department is, uh, you know, it's not any different really from anywhere else. But I think sometimes it's exacerbated. Uh, in areas where there's a lot of stress, you know, from time to time, you know, in the work and so forth. People take liberties with their words, what they say. Well, bad company will corrupt good morals, so we take note of that. And then lastly, from Galatians chapter 2, verse 13, <clears throat> where it's talking about, it's, this is those verses talking where Paul's speaking of his confrontation with, with Peter. Over this issue of Jewish legalism, you know, back in uh, back in Acts, and uh, he says that the rest of the Jews, Paul's talking. He says the rest of the Jews joined him, talking about Peter, in his hypocrisy, with the result that, as he says, even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So once again, we see the influence, even with our our spiritual friends, people who are like minded. It's it's possible for us to be carried away, carried away into error, all right, because we've let our guard down. Instead of being our brother and our sister's keeper, okay, we're not thinking in that term anymore. We just think things are fine and dandy the way they are and that we can, that, that somehow some individual somehow can't be tempted or can't fall into sin, that their example is always going to be the example to follow. And I would say to you this morning, there's a danger in that. 
You know, Paul knew that. That's how he would say, you know, a couple times he'd say, be imitators of me, be imitators of me. And one time he cleared it up. He said, be imitators of me, even as I am an imitator of Christ. You don't imitate me all the time. <laughs> imitate me as long as I'm reflecting the life of Christ. And Paul talks about here because he says, even Barnabas, and he's, he's, he's making this exclamation like, wow, this thing got so shifted to the left that Barnabas got caught up in this. And this guy was solid. He was solid, which says something about what? Our potential. Day in and day out. We live with this potential. And then there's another, there's another aspect of this. <laughs> the more you put yourself out there, the more you strive to live for Christ, the more, oh, I'm in the Word. I'm learning so much in the Word. God's increasing my ministry, so on and so forth. He's increasing my boldness. He shows up. I see Him going before me, preparing hearts. I know He's there. I'm your man, Lord. Be careful. Be careful. Because there is a battle raging. A battle raging. And opposition, evil, Satan himself, shows up when the work is being done. Rest assured, He'll show up. So we're constantly, we're totally dependent upon the power of God. We bring nothing to the table. Nothing. No. We will fall on our face in our ministry once we begin to entertain just for a moment that we're all this or all that, or we've got our act together, that we've progressed, we've done this. Let's just be mindful of what God is doing, has done, has promised to do in our life. And He'll continue to guide us. He'll continue to enhance our ministry. Also, it doesn't mean that there won't be difficulties, right? It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that there won't be persecutions. There certainly will be persecutions. We're told to rejoice. We're told to rejoice when we suffer for Christ's sake. So when we talk about separating ourselves, separating ourselves not from the world, or not just from the world, but separating ourselves to Christ, that's of most importance. Okay? It's not just pulling away, it's turning towards something. Now, I mentioned briefly when we looked at, what was it, Luke uh, 1... Was it 115? 117. 115, yeah. Uh, That scripture that talks about him being filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb also mentioned the fact that he didn't touch any any alcohol. He didn't didn't do that, uh, the wine or liquor. And there's indications that, that John had taken or was functioning under the Nazarite vow, okay? Okay. Depends on what you read because there's not anything specific about that. But abstention from, from wine and liquor that we read about there was a key element of that Nazarite vow. You can go to Numbers uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, uh, which could explain you know, why, uh, why John was, was there with that. The Nazarite vow was usually a temporary vow. Uh, Paul observed that, I want to say, he observed that uh, temporarily. But there are examples in the Word of God. Uh, Samson in Judges chapter 16, um, Samuel in 1 Samuel 1, they were Nazarites for life. Scripture indicates that. 
So, but most of the time it was for a period of time. So what I read said whether John also was a lifelong Nazarite is really not clear uh, from the gospel accounts of his life. But at any rate, that's what he observed. He just pulled away from that, stayed away uh, from that, and uh, wanted to keep his head clear, wanted to keep his mind clear, wanted to make a statement, okay? Uh, and that's, that's exactly what he did. In verse 5 of chapter 3, it says that Jerusalem was going out to him and that all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. This is, this is important. I, I like this because it points directly and has a bearing on the message that John was preaching because what he was preaching, we already know, was what? Repentance. That's what he was preaching. And it's just tempting. I mean, we'll stop for a minute and just, just draw our attention to the message itself. And kind of look around and, and what we know about churches and other ministries, uh, other not just, uh, well, the, the worldwide ministries that we see. And so how much do you hear about repentance? And this, this is the message. I mean, it's gone further than that. That's, you know, I can pick up things and read where people say, oh, we don't talk to visitors in the church about repentance. or We don't talk to them about sin for at least a year. We don't do that. Well, John the Baptist, in his preparatory work for Christ's ministry, Jesus himself that we shared, certainly Paul and Peter, this was the message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the message. We've got to get comfortable again, if we're uncomfortable, about understanding that when we're talking to people and witnessing to people and sharing with them, it ain't just about coming to church, okay? It's not just about attending a meeting or whatever. It's about repentance. Now, when, uh, you know, when the Holy Spirit has prepared a person to receive that and you're genuinely concerned with that aspect of your ministry to them, you'll know that. The Holy Spirit will show you that. I'm not saying get in somebody's face and start talking to them about repentance. I'm talking about that is your goal, Okay, And it may be your immediate goal based upon where that person is. But if that's your goal, I assure you the Holy Spirit will empower you to know when and where and how to do that. But to leave the message off or, or to just disavow that, hey, well, we'll get to that. It'll be obvious. It'll be their idea. No, no, we have, to, we have to speak the truth in love. We have to lay it out there. We have to talk about change. We have to talk about putting off and putting on and all those things that we... See in God's Word, this is where the power is. And you say, what's the relation? Well, this is exactly what John was doing in all of Jerusalem and all of Judea and the district, it says, around Jordan were flocking to hear him. And they were flocking in such a way that it got the attention of the religious Jews, the religious leaders, so they go out there and show up to see what's going on, to see what the competition is. That's why they're out there. The message of repentance is the message that draws. The message of repentance. The message that that wakes us up. The message that causes us to to look within our heart and to see if we're guilty. If we need to come before God. Even I'm talking to believers now. 
Are you to the point in your Christian life where you welcome, you welcome a message that would lead you to repentance? A message that would shed light on your life, that would expose sin, okay? Maybe a, a sin of ignorance, okay? An unwillful sin perhaps, but also expose those things that maybe you got yourself, you know, you, you've kidded yourself. You've deceived your own self in trying to define and rationalize some sin in your life. This is the work of the Holy Spirit continually in our life. This will not change, and we'd better hope and pray it doesn't change. Because we don't have a way back. Nothing is going to bring us into that place with God once again where we're clean apart from the Holy Spirit and the Word of God doing its work in our heart of repentance. Nothing. So I pray that that would be our desire. That's God's desire for us. And He tells us that if we're faithful... Uh, that if we confess our sins, rather, that He is faithful and just. He can do it justly. We can't. He can do it just. He's faithful and just to forgive us. Praise God to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us. I, that's what, that's what I, I long for, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, how do we get dirty? I've already been cleansed. You know, just like He told John, you know, or Peter, you know, I got you know, I'm going to wash your feet. You ain't going to wash my feet. No, yeah. He says, well, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part with me. He says, well, my hands and my head too. Wash all of them. No, just need to wash your feet, okay? <laughs> That's what He does to us through His Word and through His Spirit. We're, we're made clean again. We're made clean again. So we ask ourselves, I hope we don't just reserve it to, for nighttime when we're lying on our pillow and we're about to to drift off into some pleasant sleep and we pray and I, I go to I go to sleep praying every night. I don't have a problem with it. I just pray to sleep, okay? But I hope that's not the only time you pray, that during the day, throughout the day, that we're sensitive to the Word of God. When the Holy Spirit speaks to our heart, we want to get it fixed. We want to, to get sin confessed. It may be an attitude. It may be a neglect. It may not be something overt in our life. And we call it what it is. And we deal with it according to the Word of God. And we ask God to hear our prayer of repentance. We know that He's forgiven us of our sins. We know that. Our sins are paid for as believers. They're paid for past, present, and future. But we still come before Him examining our life, desiring uh, for our sanctification, if you will, our progressive, our continual sanctification not to be hindered, that we can move forward and grow grow in Christ. And then lastly, verse 6, and we'll finish up, says that they were being baptized by Him in the River Jordan as they confessed their sins. This is what John was asking them to do. And this baptism that they're talking about, it didn't reflect uh, the typical Jewish uh, baptism or uh, ceremony mostly, which just focused on their hands and their feet. They weren't unfamiliar with a baptism. I know archaeologically they've un- uncovered, even as parts of the temple, these, these different places, uh, these pools, which were baptismal pools where people would be baptized. 
But when they thought of baptism, particularly immersion, that's what the Jews did for a person who came into the Jewish faith as a, as a proselyte. They brought them in, a Gentile, they brought them in and baptized them in that fashion. So here's John the Baptist asking these Jewish leaders to repent and submit to that baptism. Can you imagine, I mean, culturally, religiously, what that meant to them, okay? I have any intentions of doing that. What all would they have to put off in order to do that? Now, I'm saying that some of them did, but you could probably count them on one hand. <laughs> so, culturally, that's, that's what was going on. That's what was being done, being done. John was talking about a one-time baptism. This was the same thing, as I said, that was done for a Gentile coming into the Jewish faith. It had been a major, it would have been a very big, big step for any Jew, any religious dude to submit to that. But he said that some came confessing their sins, confessing their sins. So repentance and faith, as we said, are the only way to come. And they came and they did this publicly. The Greek word, I think I can do this, is ex, exomologio. And it means a verbal or a public confession. This is what was required. If you won't confess me before men, I won't confess you before my father. I've been sharing uh, uh, Christ with a, a lady that works at a little Greek restaurant up here by the hospital. It's a Greek restaurant. And she, when I come in, y'all know the place there? She, uh, it's Tessa the lady that you yeah, almost see her every time. And she's always like, you got a new word for me? Because I'll bring a Greek word in. That's how I'm reeling her in. And she, uh, so we've talked about all different kinds of words and so forth. And yesterday we were talking, and uh, I noticed that when we would talk, if I recommended a, a movie to her, you know, like a Christian movie or something, or was talking to her about a title of a book, she would say the title of that book. And in one particular case, well, I was telling her about a, a Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. They made a movie on it I watched the other night, which is it's pretty good if you take it in context and understand what's going on. I wanted her to watch that. And she says, oh, yeah. I said, don't forget the name of that movie now, Tess. She said, yeah, it's the case for, you know, the case. She couldn't say Christ. And there were people around. And I noticed that. And then another little incident came up where Christ would have been the natural thing for her to say, but she couldn't say it. Or if she said it, she said it under her breath. Of course, she's a Catholic. Okay? And, uh, but I've enjoyed uh, getting to know her. And she's, she helped me with a couple of words. I gave her the word technon one time, talking about the word for children or young children. And she went off on that. And she knows her Greek, you know. She was telling me about this. So anyway, uh, God works in that. But point being comes down to this issue of, of Christ and knowing Christ and this, this open public confession. We know that that's what baptism is, right? That's our public profession, uh, certainly for what, it's, what it's, uh, its typology, what it means. But that's what we want to do. Well, we're going to stop right here.